Good morning. Our reading today is from Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, hey, good morning. Uh, before we dive into our sermon, I just, um, y'all heard this news a few weeks ago. Uh, but Josh Pantana, our worship leader uh, for the last several years, uh, is leaving us because he's a quitter. Uh, and I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I deflect my pain with humor. Uh, he uh, is on to new endeavors, and today is actually his last Sunday on staff. Um, and so I'm openly inviting you to give him and his wife Stephanie uh, awkward hugs after this to thank them uh, for their service here. Here's kind of the weird, awkward thing about it. They're not going anywhere. And Josh has graciously uh, volunteered uh, himself that basically said, I'll, I'll lead worship here until you find somebody. Uh, so you'll see him for the next year and a half uh, because <laughs> we're planning on using and abusing that volunteer spirit of his. Um, but it is a, uh, again, I, I know I said I deflect with humor. It is a deep sadness for us to, to say goodbye. Um, there, there is... No, no drama, there is no hidden story. It is literally just the Lord has called them on to other things. And um, Lord and I have had some words about that. Uh, and so we are, we are very sad, but we love him and uh, are very glad that they're not leaving us. So thank you. Um, transition. Um, we are uh, studying the book of Colossians this fall. Uh, if you've been visiting with us or, uh, or this is your first Sunday, let me catch you up uh, for just a little bit. Colossians is a power-packed book in the New Testament. Uh, it is short. It's only about two and a half pages long, uh, but Paul is throwing some major uppercuts and right hooks to the reader um, as, as he writes this book. Paul writes this book from prison in Rome. He writes this book uh, to a small, small, small church across the Mediterranean in Asia Minor in a little town of Colossae. It's not very big. It's not very old. Uh, new believers in the faith, a new church plant. Paul's never even met these people. He's just heard about this, uh, this small growth of, of this small uh, first century church, and he wants to write to them to encourage them. He wants to write to them to build them up and to defend off uh, false teachers and to tell them, hey, my goal for you as kind of your grandfather in the faith is that you would grow up, that you would mature in the mystery of the gospel of grace. And so all throughout, he calls the gospel this mystery, this mystery of the gospel, mystery of the gospel, mystery of the gospel. But he doesn't mean that it's this unsolvable crime that is a mystery and he needs a detective to, to go and find the facts about the gospel. 
This, this word, mystery of the gospel, more means this is kind of uh, an unsearchable treasure that you'll never get to the bottom of. It's mysterious in its breadth. It's mysterious in its depth. You won't ever suss out all of the treasure that's here. And so I'm calling it a mystery because we won't ever get to the very bottom of this. And he's saying, I want to mature you in the mystery of the gospel. I want you to stand up and stand firm. I want you to grow and mature in your understanding of what Christ has done for you. And so Paul, on kind of every section that we've looked at, every passage that we're walking through, Paul is laboring for the maturity of the reader. And in this section, our, our short little section today in chapter 2, um, as we close out chapter 2, Paul wants to take us all to a very dangerous place. Because the topic for Paul in this little section, what he wants to labor and write and contend for, for the reader and for the listener is that he wants to mature the reader into Christian freedom. And perhaps the greatest or primary way that our freedom as a Christian is robbed from us is when we begin to have the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus and get additions to it. When we add to the gospel, and additions to the gospel can come from every which way, and we're going to talk about that. When additions are made to the gospel, freedom is lost. See, the word gospel literally means good news. It's good news. It's an announcement about an event that has taken place for the benefit of the listener. That's what the word gospel means. It's not a Christian word. It's a historical word that just means announcement that brings joy. And the gospel of Jesus is an announcement that brings joy to the listener. But ever so subtly, additions begin to be made to the gospel, and the gospel ceases to become good news and becomes good advice. And Paul's saying the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. And when you make additions to the gospel, you turn it into advice and you thereby forfeit your freedom. And in the first century in Colossae and in the 21st century in Nashville today and in every generation in between, we have sought and others have sought to add to the gospel. And when we add to the gospel, we do um, subtraction by addition. We add, but we actually end up taking away and so Paul here is saying, I'm fighting for your freedom, and you will never be free as long as you add to the gospel. As long as you let anyone add to the gospel, your freedom will be forfeited. And Paul knows that there are two primary ways to add to the gospel and to take away our freedom. The first way that, that additions can be made to the gospel and we lose our freedom is when we let other people judge us. We take other people's additions to the gospel and we let them judge us by those additions. Look at what he says in verse 16 and in verse 18. This is how he opens up the entire section, fighting for freedom for the listener. Verse 16 says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And then skipping down to verse 18, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on and on about details, about visions, puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. So Paul's saying, look, there's two ways that people are gonna judge you and try to disqualify you. And one kind of comes from within and one kind of comes from without of the, the, the gathering of the church. In first century Christianity, it was exploding because many Jews were becoming converts to this faith in the Messiah, faith in the King of the Jews. So many Jews were the early converts. 
And what had happened, what had happened was, what had happened when, when, when Jews were, were converted into Christianity, uh, the Judaizers, as they're known, they were also converts to Christianity. They would come alongside these new believers and they would say, hey, the gospel of Jesus is great. I'm glad you believe that the Messiah has come. That's awesome. They died for you. But let me tell you about a few Jewish laws and Jewish practices that you've got to keep doing if you really want this to be real. Because Jesus, you know, he would still want you to follow in this context, follow the new moon festival laws and the food laws and the Sabbath laws because, I mean, those are pretty important. And so the Judaizers were coming in, they were adding to the gospel and they were saying, if you don't do this, then you're going to kind of be out. You're not going to have a real freedom of faith. Your freedom will only come, new Christian, if you add to it these Jewish laws. And then the second, in verse 18, the second addition that the crowd was making to this early church, this new church, was kind of from Greek culture, these Greek converts had come in, asceticism as it's, as it's known and called here. They were coming in with, with radical discipleship, if you will. You wanna follow Jesus? That word asceticism literally is like severe discipleship. Like they were mutilating their bodies in order to refrain from sinning. Like Jesus said, if your right hand caused you to sin, if your eye caused you to sin, pluck it out and cut it off. And so he's saying, hey, if you really want to follow Jesus, you might need to be doing harm to your body in order to really be a real free Christ follower. You want freedom? Jesus is great. But you got you to do some other things to make this faith and make this freedom real. You must be doing these things, either from Judaizers or from the Greek converts. They were coming in. They were adding to the gospel. And then they were saying, if you don't do these things, these Jewish festival laws, these Jewish food laws, or this asceticism, this way of following, this way of discipleship, then you're going to be judged. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to kind of, be, we're in and you're going to be out. We're kind of the inner core of those that are really free in Christ because we're doing all the right things. You're going to be outcast from the Christian community if you don't follow these rules. And Paul here comes along and he says, don't let them do that to you. Don't let them judge you that way. Don't let them disqualify you that way because they're robbing from the freedom that is actually yours when you let them add to the gospel that way. He continues to comment on this issue at the close of the, the first paragraph of our section. Verse 20, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Why do you submit to regulations if, if, that, if all of those regulations have lost their power over you? The last word in that sentence is a very interesting Greek word. Do you, why do you submit? Why do you continue to submit to these regulations? It's actually the Greek word where we get our English word dogma. In essence, Paul is saying, why are you submitting to this new religion, this new dogma? Why are you letting these rules become laws and regulations and requirements for the gospel? Paul is saying, why are you coming under or letting yourself come under the dominion of this new dogma? Why do you submit to their decrees? These aren't just arbitrary rules that they're adding to the gospel. They are making a new religion. When these new additions are coming to the gospel, these, this is dogma. It's religious law for these people. And it's not just religious law. They're bringing you into a courtroom and they're playing judge and jury. And they're saying, here are the rules if you want to be righteous in this courtroom. And we've got a gavel in our hands. And if you don't follow these rules, we will slam the gavel and you will either be in or you will be out based on how you follow these rules and these practices. These additions meant verdicts of innocent or guilty for this small, young Christian church. But here's what's interesting. 
Those people, they, the ones who were adding, the Judaizers and the Greeks who were converting and adding these, these, do, these dogmatic rules onto the gospel, they would have never said that they were doing that. They would have never said we're adding new dogma to the gospel. They didn't think they were adding dogma. They thought they were adding very helpful things to this new church. Hey, I mean, we're not trying to you know, create any kind of new religion or anything, but don't you think we kind of need to do some of the old Jewish stuff we've always been doing? Or the Greeks come in and saying, man, don't you think we should be really serious about our faith? Don't you think we should be really following extremely and radically the gospel of Jesus? They're not thinking they're creating new dogma. But subtly and almost secretly, that's exactly what they were doing. G.K. Chesterton, brilliant author of the last century, uh, said the special mark of the modern world is not that it is skeptical, but rather that it is dogmatic without even knowing it. Like these Judaizers and these Greeks were not coming in and saying, we have all these rules that we have to follow and here's our rule book. They were just thinking they were adding some other additions to freedom. Do you really wanna be free? Well, here's some good freedom practices. Here's some good freedom rules when really they were adding their own dogma to it. Do we do that? Do we let other people add to the gospel of freedom what dogma have we submitted to and let ourselves be put in shackles by adding to and submitting to these additions to the gospel? How about this one, the dogma of our parents? Everybody in here has 10 commandments of their family that they were given, dogma from your family system that you were given. Your parents set the rules, they set who you're supposed to vote for, they set what success or achievement means for your family, they set what role yours is in the family, and it's almost as if the family systems take on a life of their own and they come along and they say, it's fine if you're a Christian, but you better still submit to the family first. Your allegiance better be here. Yeah, no one can relate to that. So what else? What other, what other, what other dogma do we submit to and add on to the gospel? What other rules have become requirements in our Christianity in order to be really free. Here's a couple from our context, because I know family was a bad example. So here's a couple, and I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm guilty, I, I am a victim and a perpetrator of letting these additions become requirements and become dogma to the gospel of freedom. How about the dogma of self-awareness? Who in here believes that in order to be really free in the gospel, you have to have a PhD in knowing yourself? And again, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with knowing yourself. But have we added to the dogma of the gospel by demanding that people be self-aware? Like, the gospel's great, but do you know your Enneagram number? <laughs> and I'm a seven-wing eight, which is why I can say that to you and kind of punch you with that. And if you're not laughing, you're still free. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Or how about this one? How about what moral requirements have we made essential to the gospel? Like the gospel is great, but you still have to behave. You still have to do the things that you know, we tell you to do or that you're supposed to do. Because you're free, but asterisks, only kind of free unless you're behaving in the right way. Or how about this one? This is very generic, but I think very, at least it, it hits, cuts deep for me. How about just knowledge? Like we add the dogma of knowledge to the gospel of freedom. Man, the gospel is great, but if you wanna be really free, you have to listen to this podcast. Or, or it, you can be really free as long as you read these articles that, I, that will tell you how to really be free. Like how many people in here in the last week have said or been sent an article? 
Like that's what, that's what we do now is we send articles and we think we're experts on things. We have all this knowledge because I read an article on it from the Washington Post or whatever. And so it's like this addition subtly creeps in that if you haven't read these 14 books, you won't be really free. If you haven't added this, this category of knowledge to the gospel, you won't be really free. Gospel's great, but knowledge will set you free. And again, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. There's nothing wrong with becoming more self-aware. There's nothing wrong with morality or nothing wrong with increasing our knowledge. But when they become additions to the gospel in order to be free, that's what Paul is fighting against. That if you wanna be really free, you cannot let other people judge you based on their dogma. His concern in our passage is freedom. Paul knows that other people's dogma will not lead us to freedom. It will not liberate us. And so Paul says here, opening line, do not let anybody judge you by those standards. Don't let anybody judge you by their dogma. Which is kind of a weird statement. For him to say, don't let them judge you. Hey, Paul, I don't have any control over what they do to me. I can't stop them from judging me. I can't stop my parents from thinking a certain way about me. I can't stop my coworkers or my culture from thinking a certain way about me with their new dogma and with their additions to the gospel. I think Paul was emotionally healthy enough to know that he couldn't stop other people from doing what they were gonna do in their hearts towards him. And so is it possible that what Paul is saying to the church is in your own heart, Don't give them the power of letting their power judge you. Quit giving people the power to disqualify you. In other words, quit letting them be Jesus to you. They're not Jesus. They don't get to be judge and jury over you. They don't get to decide what dogma means you're in or you're out. Because when you let them add their dogma to the gospel, it will rob you of your freedom. Don't give them the power of letting them judge you or letting them disqualify you because it will enslave you. When you let other people's dogma rule you and you try to live up to their dogma, you now let their judgment of you drive you. And when you do that, you will not be free. You'll become a slave to their dogma. Don't let others judge you, he says. Paul sounds like a millennial. Paul sounds like he invented the the modern cultural credo of don't let anyone judge you. No one can judge me. Because we hear that, we go, hey, don't let others judge me. Yeah, that's great. Everybody's saying that. Paul would be nodding in agreement with the modern cultural credo, don't let anybody judge you. Because if you're letting other people judge you, you will not be free. And so the modern mind hears this from Paul, don't let others judge you. And we go, yeah, Paul. That's exactly right. We've been trying to say that for years. We've been trying to say that to our parents. We've been trying to say that to older generations. We can't let you judge us. But just like anybody that has has stepped into newfound freedom, because there is a a giant first step of being truly free, and one of those steps, the first step is don't let anybody judge you. But normally when people have newfound freedom, they don't know what to do with it. And that's what we've all done is with this newfound cultural credo, don't let anybody judge me. We take our newfound freedom, we got a key that unlocked us from a cage and we're running wild in the field and then we find a new cage. We actually run back into shackles without even realizing it. Paul would say, don't let anybody judge you. That's the first step into freedom. It's just not the last step. Because in our freedom from others' dogma, we usually end up creating our own dogma. We add to the gospel ourselves. 
And when we do that, we become not a slave to what other people think of us, we become a slave to what we think of us. Paul would say that. They can't judge you on those things, but we take that freedom and we go, oh, I can judge me. I'll become the judge of me. To quote the modern prophet of modern hip-hop, Tupac Shakur, hashtag West Coast, anybody? No? Okay, good. Um, Only God can judge me. Great first step. He says, and I don't see why everybody has to feel as though they got to tell me how to live my life, you know? And he's saying, no one can judge me. And he's stepping into freedom. But then listen, he gets so close. And I love Tupac. I, seriously, big fan. But listen to how close he gets. He gets so close to freedom. Don't let anybody judge you. But then listen to what he says in the very next line. Just let me live my life, baby. Let me live. Let me do what I'm going to do. That's where freedom is, right? You can't tell me what to do, so I'll go do what I want to do. And Paul here would say to us, he would step in with giant red flashing signs and say, that's not freedom either. To be your own judge is not freedom. You have to get out from the judgment and the jury of what's out there, whatever system is you're letting judge you and disqualify you. That's the first step in freedom. But when you do that, we tend to step in the direction of, fine, I'll just be my own judge. And Paul would say, that's not freedom. Paul warns us here that if we, be, if we attempt to become our own judge, we will be just as enslaved. Verse 20 again, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to dogma? Do you submit to regulations? And then, he's continuing that thought, submitting to dogma, and then skip ahead to verse 23. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Self-made religion. Is it possible that there is an incredible freedom from not letting other people judge you? That's true. It will, it will taste and smell and feel like freedom when, when you stop let, giving other people the power to judge you. But we are no more free functionally because we have thought that our freedom comes from becoming our own judge, stepping into our own autonomy. And really, at the end of the day, human autonomy is just as tyrannical as letting other people judge us. Your dogma will no more liberate you than anyone else's. And so we've thought, when I stop letting them judge me by their dogma, I'll be free, I'll finally be free. But then we subtly turn inwards and we start navel gazing and we start thinking, I'll be my own judge. I'll decide what's best for me. I'll decide what's right and wrong. I'll decide what I get to be. And Paul here would say, that's self-made religion and it won't liberate you. My wife and I binged watched the last couple of months catching up on what I've uh, noted as ABC's version of This Is Us. Anybody? Called Million Little Things. Anybody? Yes? It's okay. Uh, It's not great. Uh, It's it's no parenthood, but um, it's, it's good. But there's, there's this woman, one of the main characters, she, she has a deceased husband, and I won't give anything away, but she, she is wrestling with the guilt, and she's wrestling with not getting to talk to him again and speak to him again. And she said in the last episode we watched, she said, I just wish I could talk to him and hear him say that he forgives me. Translation, he's my judge, and now he's deceased, and so I can't hear the pardon. I can't hear the freedom that he could give me. And one of her friends is trying so sweetly to encourage her. He's trying so sweetly to liberate her, and he says to her, you'll never hear from him, and so that won't free you. You don't need him to forgive you. You need to forgive you. And that sounds great, but if that were so easy, why don't we all just do that? How come when I say to me, 
I forgive you, I don't feel free? How come when I'm the judge, it doesn't actually liberate me? How come when I've set myself up as the autonomous declarer of who's free and who's not, it actually doesn't have the power to liberate me? Because Paul would say, it's self-made religion. That not letting other people judge you, great first step. You starting to judge you, you starting to be the one who decides what's right and what's wrong and who's in and who's out, not gonna liberate you either. There's a beautiful picture of um, the enslavement of this autonomous pursuit. There's a beautiful image of it in um, Harry Potter. It's been a while since we've had a Harry Potter reference. You're welcome. Um, the mirror of Erised, which is really the mirror of desire. There we go. Thank you. Um, what book is that from? Is it Chamber of Secrets or what is it? Keep it down back there. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Sorcerer's Stone. Harry Potter and the Mirror of Erised, which again has to be read backwards as the Mirror of Desire. And what happens when one looks into the Mirror of Erised is that person is shown an image of what they think would lead them to happiness and freedom. They're shown an image of what they think would liberate them. If I could just have what I see in the mirror, it's a projection of their deepest desire and they're saying, if I could just have this, this mirror will show me what I think will lead me to freedom. The mirror's inscription, which also has to be read backwards in order to be understood, says, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. It shows you the thing that you think will bring you happiness and freedom. That's what the mirror shows, the mirror of ear said. So Harry looks in the mirror and he sees his parents who are both dead and he's, and he's longing to be with them. He said, if I could just be with them, that would liberate me. If I could just see them and touch them again and it's showing, man, if I could just be with them again, I would be free and I would be happy and I would be content and I would be liberated. But wise Dumbledore warns Harry after he's looked into it. This is what Dumbledore says about Harry looking into and seeing what he thinks will liberate him. He says to Harry, this mirror will give us neither knowledge nor truth. Men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they have seen or been driven mad, not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. This mirror will give us neither knowledge nor truth, and the one who looks into it will not even know if what it's showing is real or even possible. That's a lot like what we've done with don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone add dogma to the gospel that you're submitting to. Don't let them put you in shackles. We take the don't let them judge you, and we go, well, then I'll just be my own judge. I'll decide what will liberate me. I'll decide in an autonomous declaration that I can be my own judge, thinking that that will bring me real freedom. And thinking that, I get to be my own judge and I get to add my own dogma to the gospel. So we curate these, these damning and dominating additions to the gospel. Things like this. How about this self-made religious statement? Just be true to yourself. Like that's an internal dogma. They don't get to tell me who to be, I'll tell me who I'm gonna be. Just be true to yourself. Isn't that gonna liberate me? That's really hard to do, be true to yourself, when you don't even know who you are or what version of yourself you wanna be that day. It's also really enslaving because do you know, um, how about the you that you wanna be true to yourself today? Do you think that that you could change in six months or a year? Do you think your, what you value and what you prize and what you treasure could change in, in a couple months? 
and you want the authority and you want the power to decide this is what it means to be true to me, when, do you know how fickle you are? Do you know how much you've been tossed by the wind in the last six months, much less the last six years? Are you sure you wanna sit on the throne and decide this is what's good for me, this is what I will do because this will lead me to freedom? Do you really wanna be your own judge of what's right and what's good and what's true for you? See, they told you that autonomy would bring you freedom and in so doing, they put new shackles around your feet. The mirror of desire showed you what you thought would liberate you. But here, Dumbledore, here, Paul, the original Dumbledore. <laughs> Men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they've seen, not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. See, we've added to the gospel ourselves. Like they added to the gospel, there's all these rules and all these expectations that have been added to the gospel from all these different systems, family and culture and friends and how you were raised and all this stuff that adds to the gospel and you need to be free from that. Don't let them judge you by that. But we take that and we do our own adding to the gospel. We insert our own dogma and self-made religion, Paul says it here, will always have the appearance of wisdom. It's so alluring it's appealing because we so desperately want to be free. It has the appearance of wisdom. It has the appearance of freedom, but it never liberates. It never delivers. In fact, it's what Paul is saying all throughout this passage. If you let others judge you, if you let them add to the gospel for you, you won't be free. But if you start to judge you and you start to add to the gospel and you start to do self-made religion and you get to decide what's real and what's true, you won't be free there either. Others' dogma won't free you, and neither will your own dogma. Verse 23, his conclusion of this little section, conclusion of the chapter, he said, These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The Greek there on that last phrase says, but they, meaning the dogma, the dogmas, self-made or others-made, the dogmas, have no certain value towards satisfying the flesh. This final clause, the final punch from Paul in this whole section, he's saying the failure of dogma to be able to do what it claims to do. Dogma always promises to liberate. Dogma always promises to set you free. And this is what he's saying, from without or from within, you will never be free if you let anything be added to the gospel. If you let any dogma come in, if you let any new rules, any new law come in, you will not be free. Dogma promises freedom and it holds it out in front of us like the mirror of Erised and says, if you just had this, you would be free. Add to the gospel and you will be free. There are so many ways to do it, so many ways to add to the gospel, but Paul is clear here. Do not add anything to the gospel because when you do it, you will take away from it. You will not be free. So why do you think why do you think that the adding of dogma from without or from within, why do you think that's so appealing to us? Why do you think we're so hell-bent on letting the gospel be added to? Why does doing more things or making other people happy or making myself happy or why does any of those things always call to us? Why do we always fall prey to the temptation of Jesus plus something will liberate you? Because we're afraid and because we so desperately want to be free. And ever so softly, ever so subtly, this voice creeps into us 
And it tells us if you had done things differently before this moment, you wouldn't be in this much pain. If you had had the right dogma before in seasons past, you wouldn't be in this much pain. So here's the temptation. Get it right next time. Add the right dogma. And maybe that's your own or maybe that's somebody else's. But you're in pain right now. You're suffering right now because you didn't do it right. And so you had the wrong dogma. And the answer, generally, for most of us in our self-made religion is, I'll go make my own dogma, and I will get it right, and then I won't be in pain anymore. Right now, you're in shackles, and you want to be free. And just like Sisyphus from Greek mythology, and Sisyphus and Tupac, same sermon, spanning the ages here. And Sisyphus, Sisyphus who, who rolls the, 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 the boulder up the hill and he keeps rolling the boulder up the hill till he gets to the top and it rolls back down and it crushes him. His whole life he's been sentenced to rolling the boulder up the hill. We think over and over and over again, if I could just get over this hill, I'll find freedom. If I could just add the right thing, I'll find freedom. And if you're a Christian, your whole life is going to be the war to add to the gospel or to truly believe that the only thing you need is Jesus alone. There will be a war in your heart that everything you need is actually already yours. And we get these additions from family systems and from culture and from religion and from irreligion and from spiritual hierarchy systems and enlightenment. And we're constantly adding, 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 adding to Jesus and his gospel. And Paul here is contending for our freedom. He's warning us, when you add to the gospel, you will lose your freedom. See, when, when we let them judge us in our hearts, we give them the power to slam the gavel and declare whether we're in or we're out. We give them the power, we let them be Jesus. And then when we take the power and we take the gavel and we say, well, then I'll just be my own judge. Now we've become Jesus. And Paul here is saying, no false version of Jesus will set you free. Only the real Jesus can set you free. When you let them be Jesus to you, you will not be free. When you become Jesus to you, you will not be free. Only the real Jesus can set you free. That's so what he's saying right here in verse 21. He's saying, with Christ you died to the powers and the dogma that would rule over you. With Christ you died. You were joined with him. You were united to him and he died. And guess what happened when he died? Something happened. Something shifted. His death accomplished something. His death made something happen. And Paul's saying here, one of the things that it made happen is it made all of those other systems of dogma lose their power over you. They don't have any power over you anymore because they've been nailed to the cross and they don't hold the gavel anymore. And yes, the cross of Jesus accomplished a billion things, but don't miss what Paul's also saying here. He's bringing up the death of Jesus because he's fighting for our freedom. Listen to what the logic here of Paul is. Paul is saying the cross set you free. And here's his logic here. When you let other people judge you, you'll never be free. When you start to judge you, you'll never be free. But Paul's not saying that there is no courtroom. Paul's not saying that there is no judge. He's saying they make a really bad judge and you make a really bad judge. Guess what? There already is a judge. And his name is Jesus. And guess what happened in his courtroom because he died for you? You stood before the judge and he slammed his gavel based on his merit covering you. And he said, innocent, righteous, justified. The judge has become both just and justifier, Romans 3 says. You've already been judged and the judge set you free. That's where freedom comes from. It's not when you let them judge you and you live up to their expectations or live up to their dogma. It's not even when you judge you and you let your system of dogma try to liberate you. Only freedom can happen if the judge sets you free and in Christ he has. 
There's always this temptation to add to the gospel. We believe in our narcissism and we believe in our self-righteousness and we believe in our fear that God always wants me to be adding to the gospel. You need to add this, you need to read that book, you need to parent this way, you need to read your Bible this way, you need to add, climb the spiritual ladder this way, you need to understand this more. All the additions that we would make to the gospel over and over and over again and everything from our life because the world works this way. Everything in our life makes us think that we have to add to the gospel. And the gospel stands over us with radical passion and says to us, there is nothing you can do to add to what's already been done. That you think you need to add to what Jesus has done. And here's what the gospel says. God has already done everything. There's nothing more to do. You can't add to what's already complete. You can't add to what's already been finished. There is a judge and it's not you or anyone else. The judge's name is Jesus, and if you're united to him, he has not only judged you, he's justified you. And in so doing, he set you free from the condemnation of others and the condemnation of yourself. It is him who justifies you. You don't justify yourself. You're not that important. You don't have that much power. You can't set yourself free. Only the judge can set you free, and guess what? He has. John 8, verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Story goes that Abraham Lincoln went down to the town square and bought for himself a young girl that was up for sale to become his slave. And if you've been here a while, I've used this story before, but it's so good, it has to be retold, that Abraham Lincoln buys this slave and on his way back, uh, walking down the road with her, he begins to undo her shackles from her hands and her feet, and he says to her, you're free to go. And she says, wait, wait, what are you talking about? And he says, I just bought you. I'm setting you free. You're free. And she says to him, does that mean I can, I can say whatever I want to say to you? And he says, yeah, you can say whatever you want to say. You're free. And she says, does that mean I can do whatever I want to do? And he said, yeah, you can do whatever you want to do. You're free. And then she said, does that mean I can go wherever I want to go? And he said, yeah, you're free. And so she thinks for a minute and she looks back at him and she says, then I think I'll go with you. Because if you're the one that would buy me for yourself to set me free, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, Galatians 5.1 says. If you really are that free, guess what the most free thing you can do to continue to enjoy that freedom? Stay with the one that set you free. Because <laughs> he's all about your freedom. He will keep you free. Do you know that the world doesn't know what to do with free people? And, and, and I'm not talking about like declaring that you're free and declaring that you are gonna be your own judge. That's not freedom. A truly free person the world doesn't know what to do with, that out of submission to the gospel, you have been set free. And the hope of, 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 of this place, the hope of why we gather, is that we would hear over and over and over again, spoken over us into the deepest places where we are bound. We would hear John 8. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Let's pray and ask the Lord to lead us into that freedom. Jesus, we are so, we are so tired we're exhausted from trying to find our own freedom. And so subtly, we've decided in, in being free from what others might judge us on, we have become our own judge and jury, and we are so wiped out. And so on this Sabbath, um, 
We pray that you would lead us deeper and deeper into the freedom that you have bought for us, deeper and deeper into the rest that you have accomplished for us. As we sing out and cry out, um, inhabit the praises of your people, we pray. Hear our cries of repentance. Hear our cries of joy that you are enough to set us free. In Jesus' name, amen.